Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection. On this edition, I want to review what I call the top 10 topics of 2019, including stories impacting the Christian community, as I highlight on my weekly blog post at the three at meetinghouseonline.info and through conversations with a variety of guests on the Meeting House radio program. Coming up, you'll hear content related to a Christian worldview perspective on a variety of issues, including religious freedom in the courts, LGBTQ inroads into the laws of our country, and some significant pro-life developments. Please stay tuned for this year's edition of the Top 10 Topics of 2019 here on the Intersection Podcast. Well, in the number 10 position, pastors and church leaders facing monumental struggles. This was a brutal year for church leaders. There was the high-profile removal of James McDonald from the pastorate at Harvest Bible Chapel due to leadership concerns. Author and pastor Joshua Harris announced that he no longer considered himself a Christian, and a Hillsong leader also revealed his struggles with faith. Numerous pastors were highlighted in a high-profile series of newspaper and online articles on sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, and Jared Wilson, who led a ministry reaching out to those struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts, took his own life. It was a year full of those in pastoral leadership succumbing to incredible pressure. Gary Wilkerson of World Challenge, who has ministered to literally thousands of pastors worldwide, commented on what he sees as a crisis in pastoral leadership. Here now is Gary Wilkerson. I've been in the ministry for 40 years. Uh, During these pastors' conferences, spoken to probably more than 70,000 pastors, and a lot of that is after the teaching session, just coming down off the stage and and uh, you know, just listening to a story of a broken-hearted pastor, of a family falling apart, of a, of um, somebody falling into immorality or struggling with their, their faith, and that's what apparently Josh Harris maybe was facing all of those. Um, my mind goes to First Timothy 4, uh, verse 1 and 2, where it says, in, in last days, uh, many will depart from the faith. So, so we're not meant to be surprised by this, that that this is something the enemy's going to try to do. Uh, and he's not going to try to do it just to a few of us. He's going to try to do it all of us. It's, it's a, it, there's, there's no exception to this. There's going to be something to come into our faith that will try to get us to depart from it. Uh, but, uh, but Paul tells this young Timothy, as he's discipling him, says, you know, there's a reason for this, is, and, and he gives two reasons. One is, and the first one is not paying attention to yourself. And I think that's profound, um, that, that, that the struggle that somebody like Josh Harris, Joshua Harris has, has gone through uh, um, can come from this sense of, of not paying attention to yourself, uh, to, your, to your faith, to your, to your uh, not paying attention to where you're being tempted, not paying attention to where you need to fight that, not paying attention to the community that you're surrounding yourself around when you're, being, uh, when you're going through doubt, when you're going through discouragement, when you're going through <clears throat> battles. Um, you know, tying tying in with First Timothy four is is Matthew thirteen, where he says that you know, there's various uh, soils that the seed falls on, and sometimes they begin to take root. But then, uh, in one of them says there was no firm root, uh, and and when trouble came, uh, it, it was snatched away. And so, if you tie those two things together, trouble coming, and not and then with Timothy not paying attention to yourself, and so you know maybe trouble comes into a marriage or trouble comes into your mind. Um, difficulty faces faces you, and if you're not paying attention to yourself, and to, and I would say part of paying attention to yourself is not just a personal pursuit, but it, do you pay attention to yourself in the sense of soul care, of community care, of of getting the kind of help? Um, there was a time in my life, a couple decades ago, where I was going through a real crisis of faith. Doubt was 
was was just uh, crushing me. And I started going to the wrong sources. I started reading books by uh, Sam Harris and these other, they call them the new atheist. I just wanted to hear sort of a, a different perspective because I always, when I would have these bouts of doubt, would I would always go, okay, let me read C.S. Lewis or something like that. But this time I, I took a different uh, turn and thought, well, I wonder, you know, maybe, maybe these questions of doubt have merit. And so let me let me look at what, what it would be to, to be an agnostic or an atheist and uh, you know, so I started, and, and it really, you know, uh, it, it, was a, it was a really tough season for me to spiral down into, it wasn't, I never became an atheist or an agnostic. I stayed, stayed true to the Lord, but uh, it was definitely when trouble came, uh, I, went, I, I was not paying t- attention myself in the right way. And then the second part of First Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is not paying attention to your doctrine. And so, um, you, you know, if your doctrine starts slipping and you start believing things you didn't believe uh, the Old Testament calls it, remember the ancient paths. And if you start getting off the ancient paths and into some new winds of doctrine, uh, you've got to go back to paying attention yourself. And, and for me, that means, well, okay, what's going wrong? Because this is not just um, an intellectual uh, battle going on in your mind. It's almost always a soul battle. And it usually has something to do with, um, again, like for, uh, Matthew said, uh, when, when trouble comes, that that's where... Um, you know, the, our, our doctrine gets shaky when trouble comes. You know, even even the Old Testament says uh, a fool says in his heart there is no God. It's not in his mind he says it. You know, and we we want to intellectually battle and 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 believe. Well, what do we believe about these kind of truths? Or you know, in Joshua Howard's mind, he's obviously battling about marriage. He's battling about uh, the homosexual community, and some of these questions are are are, are troubles in his mind. And um, without a firm root and a foundation, without paying attention to your doctrine, when you begin to see these things slip, if you go to the wrong sources, uh, if, 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 you, if, you, if, you, if you don't look at your heart and, and, and start, you start saying to yourself, wait a minute, this, this, and that's what I did in my, how I came up out of that spiral of, of uncertainty was, was to say, that that's, just, that's just a foolish heart. That, that's, I'm just not paying attention to, 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 my, to the heart that Jesus has won and with his love and and uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's powerful when, when you come back to that. Gary Wilkerson of World Challenge with some comments that tie into the number 10 story of 2019, pastors and church leaders facing monumental struggles. The number nine story, Christians in the Middle East, specifically Syria, encountering challenges. This year, Syria was a prime focus regarding Christians in the Middle East. Due to the Turkish movement into northern Syria, it presented challenges for the Christians who lived in that region. Jalil Dawood of World Refugee Care shared an appraisal of the situation in early fall. The region is uh, in turmoil, definitely. Uh, You have uh, the issue with Iran, as you mentioned. It's an ongoing issue, and recently there were demonstrations in Iraq as well because the Iraqis are tired of Iranians um, milking them and taking their resources and them getting nothing and controlling Iraq politically and uh, economically. So there were uh, some demonstrations, but at the same time, uh, you know, the issue with Syria came up also where... uh, You know, the U.S. administration decided to withdraw the support for the Kurds in that area. And uh, the the Turks consider the Kurds in that area as a terrorist group, and they want to eliminate them. And they want to have a buffer zone of 
20 miles inside Turkey, stripped from side to side almost. They want to control Syria in there. And that area, especially in the northeast, uh, has a lot of Kurds and Christians. Those Christians, uh, mainly also in the Kamishli, the area called city called Kamishli, and uh, they're originally about 100 years ago, 1933, a lot of them fled out of Iraq into Syria out of persecution and political uh, turmoil. And uh, so they, they had an issue there, and that's why they are there. Uh, they are ethnically Assyrian, uh, Aramaic-speaking people, and Chaldeans as well, which are also Aramaic-speaking people. So those are the people who are there, and... Um, as soon as I heard this news, I was, uh, you know, aware that this is going to create a catastrophe as far as the refugee is going to increase the refugee uh, population uh, from the Kurds and the Christians. They're going to be fleeing that area because it's not going to be safe for them. And um, Turkey would like to uh, bring in the three million people that they have emigrated there from Syria. They'd like them to uh, be living in that area. The, the, you know, the people that fled Assad, uh, they want to take over this area, uh, empty it from the Kurds and, and other Christians, and give it to those Muslims who fled uh, uh, you know, that area. And uh, Turkey has uh, warned Europe if they're not interested and if they call this as an invasion, uh, that they would uh, allow them to uh, go into Europe. Those three million, they will open the border for them to enter into Europe. So um, it's a it's a highly charged situation. It's a, um, you know Turkey is calling it on their um, the government of Turkey is calling it on their side as um, you know Instagram as a, a, a Mohammed army is going into Syria. Uh, even though the main enemy here is a Kurd, and uh, Kurds are Muslims. So you have all this uh, situation that is complicated uh, over there, and things are not well as we speak, and we pray for them, and hopefully the situation doesn't get worse. You've had Turkish troops that have moved in. They're attempting to create this so-called buffer zone and replace the the people that had been living in that area. Mainly you have Kurds, but as, as I understand it, you also have Christians, some of whom have moved to that area as refugees from other areas in the Middle East. And I think about the situation, and maybe you can help navigate through this. From your home nation of Iraq, you have a Kurdish population there in northern Iraq. You have the the Assyrian Christians, which had a heavy population there in that area, many of whom have fled there in northern Iraq as a result of the activity of ISIS and have fled to other countries, including Syria. So it's quite possible that you have Christian refugees, Assyrian Christian refugees that have fled into Syria that are now looking for another home and doing that quite quickly. Is that is that correct? Uh, it's correct. It's going to be uh, mainly the, the Syrian uh, Christians who are Aramaic-speaking people, uh, indigenous people of Syria. They probably have to uh, either go south toward uh, uh, in, in Syria 
uh, or uh, go east toward the Kurdish area of Iraq and to be with other Christians. Jalil Dawood of World Refugee Care with comments relative to the number nine topic of 2019, Christians in the Middle East, specifically Syria, encountering challenges. The number eight story, Chick-fil-A developments causing concern. After a series of roadblocks to restaurant chain Chick-fil-A expanding into the San Antonio airport, lawmakers in the state of Texas passed religious freedom legislation, the attorney general of the state explored legal challenges, and a Christian legal advocacy organization, First Liberty, got involved. Keisha Russell of First Liberty shared developments in a meeting house conversation. With respect to the airport, uh, the San Antonio City Council uh, reviewed a concession agreement, and on that agreement, Chick-fil-A was, you know, uh, among the restaurants included, and they, you know, voted to to um, accept that concession agreement on the express condition that Chick-fil-A and only Chick-fil-A be excluded. Um, so that action produces a lot of violations, we think, of the Constitution, um, not just, you know, religious discrimination, outright hostility to religion. Um, you know, the government's required to be neutral to, to religious viewpoints, and San Antonio is demonstrating that it is not at all neutral. It's also unequal treatment, um, just be on the basis of religion. Uh, it's a viewpoint discrimination, which is a violation of the free speech clause. I mean, there's a whole long list of things, not to mention the fact that by accepting, you know, funds from the FAA through the Department of Transportation for this um, airport, San Antonio agrees that it's not going to discriminate on the basis of religion, and that's what they did here. Well, and so you've got you've got several different layers here, Keisha. Not only do you have the mm-hmm. city council that is engaging in what is what I would call, and based on what what you've said, viewpoint discrimination. One could say, well, these are private entities. This uh, paradise, or our parodies, Lagadere, I think, is something like that. The name of the 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 people running the concessions there at the airport, but they had to get approval. From the city council. There you have a government entity. Mm -hmm. I know the Mm -hmm. attorney general there in Texas is also investigating whether or not state laws have been broken and First Liberty has become involved because of the issues that are raised by this case. You Mm -hmm. all have taken certain action, including contacting the Department of Transportation in Washington. Washington. So Mm -hmm. tell me about that contact that has occurred there. Yeah, so we wrote uh, Secretary Elaine Chow of the Department of Transportation a letter outlining all of the um, legal issues with what San Antonio did, asking the department to evaluate um, the grants that they extended to San Antonio and looking at, you know, the discriminatory treatment um, of Chick-fil-A and, in fact, pull those grants if they find that San Antonio violated the, the agreements that um, they made with the federal government when they accepted that money. Um, thus far, I think one of the things we're, we're currently doing also is asking San Antonio through Public Records Act for all of their communications uh, among themselves about Chick-fil-A and their decision um, in order to turn over all of those, everything that we get and find out uh, to the Department of Transportation or even to the Texas AG uh, in order to help any sort of investigation that either entity wants to pursue. From your knowledge, what what is the AG doing at this particular time? 
I think at this at this point we're not. I'm not quite sure what the Texas AG um, is doing. I know that they um, have expressed lots of interest in the situation and wanting to evaluate um, what exactly happened with San Antonio and why they chose to ban Chick Fil A. Uh, but in terms of them taking any action yet, I haven't heard that that um, has happened um, yet. Uh, but I definitely, you know. We definitely assume that in the coming days and weeks that will there'll be some movement on this issue as you know San Antonio has to turn over some of their documents. That was Keisha Russell of First Liberty at the heart of the actions concerning the San Antonio as well as the Buffalo airports was apparently the stance of the company's head Dan Cathy on traditional marriage, which he related in 2012. Since then, the company has been branded by a number of people and organizations as anti-LGBTQ. Protests also took place in the previous year at the chain's first Canadian location and forced the closure of a UK location. By year's end, the company's foundation had changed its funding structure on charitable donations, which caused great concern among Christian leaders, with the Chick-fil-A Foundation withdrawing funding for organizations considered to be anti-LGBTQ, like the Salvation Army and Fellowship of Christian Athletes, opting instead to support groups like Covenant House International, which is more affirming of LGBTQ individuals. However, according to a report by World Magazine, Chick-fil-A continues to heavily support the Windshape Foundation founded by the Kathy family, which operates Christ-centered marriage and children's programs. Well, that wraps up commentary relative to the number eight topic of 2019, Chick-fil-A developments causing concern. In the number seven position, the U.S. Supreme Court considers the meaning of the word sex in civil rights law. There has been a groundswell for creating special considerations based on gender identity and sexual orientation in federal civil rights law. In October, the U.S. Supreme Court heard three cases that would redefine sex in the law to include these considerations. Luke Goodrich of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty provided some analysis of the stakes in the cases. There's three cases, and they all present the same basic issue around federal employment discrimination laws. So the basic question in the cases is, can an employer fire an employee because of that employee's sexual orientation or gender identity? And the way this affects religious organizations is that many, many religious organizations across the country have traditional views about human sexuality. Take a church or a religious school, and they would expect that their employees would not enter into same-sex marriage or have sex outside of wedlock, or come into work presenting themselves as the opposite sex. And so if the Supreme Court broadens the interpretation of federal law and says all employers can be sued if they discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity, that would expose thousands of religious organizations across the country to a new sort of liability, to a new sort of risk. And so that's another huge case in front of the Supreme Court right now. And speaking of the area of employment, I know that you were involved in the Beckett firm, involved in the Hosanna Tabor case from a number of years ago, which you were victorious in before the U.S. Supreme Court. As I recall, that was a unanimous decision, and it had to do with employment in the church setting. Could could some of the issues from that case perhaps be applicable in these cases we're talking about coming up in the fall term? Yes, absolutely. So the case you mentioned, Hosanna Tabor versus EEOC, 
That was a case I helped with at the Beckett Fund, and it was a unanimous Supreme Court decision in 2012, and I address this in my book, Free to Believe. It's one of the most important protections today for churches and other religious organizations when they hire and fire their employees. And the basic gist of the Hosanna-Tabor Supreme Court decision is that when a church or when a religious organization hires one of its religious leaders, that could be obviously a pastor, it could be a teacher at a Christian school, when it's hiring a religious leader, the government has no business interfering with who the church or who a religious school chooses to be one of its leaders. That was a nine to zero decision that offers tremendous protection to religious organizations across the country. Uh, the, the key battleground today is what if somebody is not viewed as a, as a leader or a minister within a church? So obviously the pastor, hiring the pastor, hiring the religion teacher is protected. What about when you're hiring the church secretary? What about a mass teacher? Uh, do religious organizations have freedom to hire those employees without government interference? Or can the government come in and tell a church or tell a school, you violated the law and we're going to force you to hire that secretary or hire that mass teacher, even if you think that would undermine your religious mission. So that's what's at stake today. And that is that is huge. It seems like that we're hearing of a number of instances where you have individuals and entities that are attempting to force churches or religious organizations or even, I would say, Christian employers. I know that gets more into to maybe a, a different area, but there's just a, a move, it seems like, to try to force people of faith to violate their own convictions in this whole area of employment. That's right. I'm, I'm representing a religious school right now that's had a teacher who entered a same-sex marriage in clear violation of his employment contract and in clear violation of church teaching. And the school said, we, we love you, we have compassion on you, but we cannot keep having you teach our children when you're in a same-sex marriage. And that teacher now sued the school and sued the church and is seeking to impose hundreds of thousands of dollars of liability on the church simply for following its religious beliefs. So that's a, that's a huge issue right now. Comments from Luke Goodrich of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty on the number seven topic of 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court considering the meaning of sex in civil rights law. The number six topic of 2019, United Methodists deal with matters of sexuality. In early 2019, United Methodist delegates met in St. Louis to consider how to deal with matters of sexuality, specifically homosexuality, in the denomination. The church's teachings considered homosexuality as unbiblical behavior, but many wanted to change that. The special General Assembly voted to approve a plan leaving teaching on homosexuality in place. In early 2020, a compromise was announced that essentially divides United Methodist into progressive and conservative wings. That compromise will be considered at the General Conference of the United Methodist Church in spring of 2020. Lester Spencer of Montgomery, Alabama's St. James United Methodist Church, who is the regional representative for the Wesleyan Covenant Association, provided a report on that special General Assembly in early 2019. Every four years, um, the Methodist Church has a gathering of delegates from around the world. It's called the General Conference for those that didn't grow up Methodist. And um, in 2016, at the General Conference, this issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage and the sanctity of marriage 
um, was it uh, came to the forefront once again, as it has for decades now at General Conference. And so the bishops um, made a recommendation that they form a commission on a way forward that would study this in detail, just this one issue, the issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality and the ordination of homosexuals, etc. And so they called a special general conference that to be held in 2019, which just uh, ended yesterday. Um, so for the last four days, this special call general conference has met in St. Louis just for this one issue to hear a report from the commission on a way forward about their recommendations. And basically multiple plans came out of that report. Uh, one was the what was called the One Church Plan, uh, which was supported by a lot of people, especially in the United States. Um, and it basically uh, redefined marriage. Uh, is not just between one man and one woman, but between one uh, uh, adult and another. Um, it also opened up the doors for um, ordination of um, homosexuals and full inclusion. The uh, the there were other plans that were on the table uh, as well. There was a plan called the Simple Plan, just just removed all language about sexuality from the Book of Discipline. There was another plan called the Connectional Conference Plan. Uh, all of those plans were failed to get enough votes to be the final one that was voted on. Um, but the traditional plan basically supported our current stance in the Book of Discipline, which many of us believe is uh, the scriptural plan. Uh, it, we, it also affirmed the uh, priority of uh, Scripture, uh, the, the authority of Scripture. It affirmed our belief in the sanctity of marriage, um, that marriage is between one man and one woman. It also uh, supported our current biblical stance uh, in the Book of Discipline that doesn't allow us to do same-sex marriages or to recognize them or to perform them or to allow them in our churches. So basically, the uh, traditional plan passed at really at the last minute yesterday. It had strong support throughout the conference, but the final vote was taken late yesterday afternoon, and it passed. There were some amendments that we tried to get uh, taken care of concerning the traditional plan because the Judicial Council of the Methodist Church had ruled that parts of the traditional plan were not constitutional according to the United Methodist Constitution. So um, we had to make some changes on amendments. So we didn't get all those amendments in. So even if parts of the traditional plan may be ruled unconstitutional, the vast majority of it is, we believe, is going to stand. Um, and and so also there was a path, um, what we call a gracious exit path, that was also approved for those churches that can't, um, in good conscience, stay a part of the United Methodist Church. There was another a plan that was called a, a gracious exit plan or a disillusion plan that allows people, allows churches to exit under certain strict conditions. So that's basically 
where the conference ended up um, in, in their final decisions. Lester Spencer of the Wesleyan Covenant Association with comments relative to the number six topic of 2019, United Methodist Deal with Matters of Sexuality. Well, you are listening to the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Today, a special edition with the top 10 topics of 2019. More topics and comments ahead. Let me tell you that you can go to meetinghouseonline.info and find out more information about The Meeting House and get connected to the Intersection Podcast. You'll find the Media Center featuring full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center, as well as through a variety of podcast platforms. Two blogs are accessible through the Meeting House homepage at meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find links to the blogs, The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info. You can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations for the Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Moving on now with the number five topic of 2019, American attempts to address religious freedom continue. The current administration's attempts to further the cause of religious freedom around the globe continue. The State Department, in fact, convened a second conference of world leaders to address the cause of religious freedom. The ambassador-at-large for international religious freedom, Sam Brownback, provided an update at the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in California. Prior to his address, I had a chance to speak with him. We advocate uh, for religious freedom for people all over the world. Uh, We advocate for policy changes in countries, for statutory changes. We advocate for countries to stand up to their U.N. commitment of human rights, which is uh, religious freedom is guaranteed in the U.N. Charter of Human Rights. Uh, We advocate uh, for individuals that are in prison for their faith around the world. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are in prison for their faith. Eighty percent is a key number that you see in two ways in, in this space that I work in. 80% of the world's population lives in a religiously restricted environment, and 80% of the world is religious. Most people in the world have a faith, and most people live in a place where that faith is restricted, or their options are restricted, and we want it to be open and free for everybody. So take us through the rationale, if you will, with so many people in this world who are religious why do you see that there is so much religious persecution? I mean, I have a few ideas, but from your from your vantage point, why is that so? You know, it, we, we lost ground. Uh, right after the fall of communism, there was a real burst of freedom around the world, and there, there was a real openness that took place. And then what we see saw took place after that was a number of countries decided, you know, if we favor one faith over another, uh, we can have some political advantage. And they didn't listen to their own constitutions and their limitations, like in our constitution. Well, you can't do that. The government's role is to protect the right to religious freedom, not to pick a winner or loser. And then in other countries, like in China, you see the government threatened by religion, saying this is an organized entity that could challenge our power, or in their perspective could challenge it. And so they uh, put significant restrictions on. So there's multiple sets of reasons, but what we end up with is a, a large percentage of the world's population, a vast, past majority, in a religiously intolerant 
restricted atmosphere. Describe, if you would, your background. Obviously, you've served in the U.S. Senate. You've served as the governor of a state. You've been someone who has gained quite a reputation for being a champion of religious freedom. Describe how your work in that arena has really uniquely prepared you to do the work that you're doing now. Well, I was one of the original proponents of this bill that created this position 20 years ago, and I, I got involved in it by, uh, there was a lady that was working in my office uh, that knew this space of religious persecution and people that were persecuted around the world, and she came to work in my office and started educating me about people in prison, and this was in particular in Central Asia at the time. And I was saying, really? People are just, they're just locked up because they believe differently than others? Yes. And it was a, it was a new thought to me because I'm American, raised in Kansas. I'm used to religious freedom. But then what I found was a lot of people in places around the world. And I also found that by advocating for them, sometimes we could get them out of jail. And certainly we had a chance of keeping them alive, that otherwise they may just disappear and be killed by the regime. So it, it really became a heart's passion for me to, to see the use of that position that I was in to be able to get people free and to keep them alive. And it's not uh, dissipated over the years. I, this is just a key work. And it's a work that really the United States is uniquely positioned to advocate for. And it's a work that we must advocate for for others. Well, and there have been so many statements, and we can even look to the top of our government, to the president, to the vice president, to Secretary Pompeo, who I guess technically that he would be your chain of command. He yes. would, you would be under the oversight of the State Department. So it's great to have American leaders, as you mentioned, who are uniquely positioned to speak on these types of issues. So what is it, as you see it, that the U.S. government can do for people who are facing persecution in other countries around the world? Well, President Trump's a man of action, and he takes action uh, in these areas. Uh, on Andrew Brunson, who was in prison in Turkey, he raised tariffs on steel and aluminum products being exported from Turkey to the United States. It tanked the Turkish currency, and they let Andrew Brunson free. Right now, we're confronting China in particular on its abysmal record on religious freedom uh, and their persecution that they're doing. And this administration is, is pushing on that, and ultimately, we can again do sanctions uh, and press, uh, press them that way. So there are a number of tools at our disposal. What we'd really seek is for countries to just abide in most cases by their own constitution and by the UN Charter of Human Rights and just let people be free. That was Ambassador Sam Brownback. His office is an arm of the U.S. State Department. Later in the year, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo convened the second ministerial to advance religious freedom. Well, those are comments relative to the number five topic, American attempts to advance religious freedom continue. The number four topic, the Equality Act, passes the U.S. House of Representatives, and a so-called Fairness for All bill was introduced into the House. The concept of providing special considerations for LGBTQ individuals was encapsulated in a deeply concerning bill that passed the U.S. House called the Equality Act. Meeting House guest Mary Beth Waddell of the Family Research Council described the bill as, quote, legislation that would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework in order to mandate special privileges in the private sector for sexual orientation and gender identity. I spoke with her prior to the passage of this dangerous legislation 
legislation for people of faith who adhere to a biblical view of sexuality. From FRC, this is Mary Beth Waddell. This bill is a massive overhaul of our federal civil rights framework. Um, it makes about 60 different amendments to about 10 different laws um, and would mandate, as you say, special privileges in the private sector uh, and public for sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, it's not about equality or protections. Everyone deserves respect and dignity and already has equal protections under the law. This is not about uh discrimination or bigotry. This is about enforcing an ideology and requiring special privileges, regardless of who you are or, you know, what your beliefs may be. It's, no, this is required um, that you must align with this ideology. Well, we think in civil rights law of protections for various classes of people, for instance, age, race, and national origin, as you point out, or religion, which is protected under the Constitution. Now, one of the insidious points, that uh, talking points, that those in favor of this legislation have made has to do with uh, somehow people are being discriminated against based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And, and that's... Give us an idea how much of this is going on that this bill is supposedly designed to protect people against. Right. A lot of the, you know, talking points that they would like to try and come up with to say, oh, there's discrimination, oh, there's bigotry, um, it's really not like this massive insidious discrimination like you saw in the past with race. You know, that's why you have, um, you know, the entire left, uh, pretty much, you know, coming out in full force to support this, other than, you know, like radical feminists, we actually uh, are, you know, have been partnering with radical feminists who understand the harms of this bill to women and to girls. Um, and so, you know, they're on board with us. But it, but aside from that, you're seeing a lot of people who are actually uh, like, no, we need to protect these people. And as you said, there are already all of these ordinances. Um, so there really isn't you know, this sort of invidious or insidious discrimination that's been going on, um, this would actually sort of cause discrimination, uh, this bill would. Talk about, if you would, and you've alluded to it already, but the how religious freedom would be trampled upon by the passage of the Equality Act. Absolutely. So RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is a bill that was passed in the 90s, signed by President Clinton, uh, with just about unanimous support um, from many of the actual Democratic leadership now, and yet they have exempted uh, RIFRA from this bill, meaning that RIFRA would not apply. And what's so just startling about that is RIFRA is a balancing test. It does not say that, uh, oh, we, you know, religious uh, practices um, can't be, you know, burdened or infringed upon. What it says is that if the government is going to burden a religious practice, it has to make sure that it's doing that uh, towards a compelling government interest mm -hmm. and in the most narrowly tailored way. So it's a balancing test where the religious practice may not win every time, but it's just making sure that uh, 
government isn't overstepping its bounds. And so that what this bill has done is said, no, we're going to overstep our bounds. We're putting, you know, weight on the scales of that balancing test and saying, no, religious practice does not matter. Um, we are, you know, going to require acquiescence, you know, that there, there's no more balancing test. You know, we, we don't care uh, in what ways we may be burdening religious practice. Mary Beth Waddell of Family Research Council with comments relative to the number four topic of 2019, the Equality Act passing the U.S. House of Representatives and a bill promising fairness for all was introduced. By year's end, that so-called Fairness for All bill, which would extend the protections of the Equality Act in exchange for what critics characterize as uncertain religious exemptions, was introduced into the House. Now, in the Christian space, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, along with the National Association of Evangelicals, have been supportive of this concept, which is opposed by a variety of groups and leaders, including the Colson Center, Family Research Council, and Focus on the Family. The number three topic of 2019, court victories for religious freedom. The LGBTQ issue continues to be significant regarding the Christian community and the freedom to hold to biblical ideals is facing threats in the public square. But this year, the right of Christians to act in accordance with their deeply held beliefs was upheld in a variety of court settings. One of the catalysts is the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision from last year. This actually affected the case of Oregon bakers Aaron and Melissa Klein, whose case reached the U.S. Supreme Court, which vacated a state court decision. The Kleins are represented by First Liberty. Also, Alliance Defending Freedom took part in a case involving two videographers, Carl and Angel Larson of Telescope Media Group. They received a favorable ruling from a federal appeals court in their challenge to a Minnesota civil rights law, which could have forced them to violate their Christian beliefs by filming same-sex weddings. Also, ADF was involved in the case of a Kentucky t-shirt printer who received a favorable outcome from the state Supreme Court there after declining to provide shirts for a gay pride parade. Jim Campbell of Alliance Defending Freedom provided some insight on the Meeting House program. In 2012, Blaine was asked to print shirts promoting the local Pride Festival. Um, it was something that he couldn't do in good conscience, given his Christian beliefs. So what he did is what he does every time he's faced with a request that has a message he can't in good conscience print. He offered to connect them to another print shop that would do the work for the same price he was charged. Unfortunately, uh, the group wasn't interested in that, so what they did was um, they <clears throat> went to the local government and they filed a discrimination complaint against Blaine, and that launched the beginning of the case. Uh, quickly, the commission issued a ruling finding that what Blaine did was, in fact, a violation of the local uh, the local law, and it ordered him to print shirts with messages that violate his faith, and it also ordered him to attend diversity training. And so what we then did is started a process of appealing to, through the Kentucky court system and at every level of appeal at the Kentucky trial court, the court of appeals, and now at the state Supreme court, we won the case. And so as, as this has made its way up, obviously when you have the lower court rulings that was appealed, went on to the next level, Kentucky Supreme court, by the way, just while I'm thinking about it, let me ask you this is, can this go further? Could it end up in a, in a federal court? conceivably. So this 
particular case is no longer. The, the ruling doesn't provide any basis to ask the only other court that's higher than the Kentucky Supreme Court, which is the U.S. Supreme Court, to review the case. So, no, there is there is no basis for this case to go any further. So as as this case made its way up through the lower courts now at the Kentucky Supreme Court, that positive ruling, what was the sentiment of the justices as they issued their ruling? So what the justices said is that this case never should have happened in the first place. They said that the the law at issue only allowed uh, organizations, uh, I'm sorry, only allowed individuals to file these complaints, but this complaint was filed by an organization, and therefore they threw the case out. Um, Now, one of the the judges on the court did specifically address the important First Amendment claims at issue, and that judge said very clearly that what the commission was trying to do here was in violation of uh, Blaine Adamson's re- religious beliefs and, more, uh, in addition to that, his First Amendment freedoms. And so what that judge said very clearly is that when you're a business owner and you're willing to serve everyone, but you just don't want to print messages that violate your religious beliefs, that that's your First Amendment right to do so. There is a need, as Alliance Defending Freedom and other legal organizations are saying, for the U.S. Supreme Court to perhaps issue a stronger message, stronger guidance than it did in the, say, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop decision. That's exactly right. Um, What the courts have done in these recent decisions is pretty uniformly ruled in favor of the creative professionals. Um, So over the course of the last six months, even going back particularly to the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, courts are ruling in favor of of these individuals, but they're not going, oftentimes, they're not going to the heart of the question, which is whether a creative professional that serves everyone can decline to print a message or create art that expresses a message contrary to what they believe. Um, And so we're encouraging the U.S. Supreme Court to do that right now through a case involving Baronelle Stutzman, who you mentioned before. Baronelle is a floral artist in the state of Washington, and her case involves a longtime customer, a customer that she served for nearly a decade. Uh, she always knew that he was gay, and that never mattered to her. She was happy to work with him, but one day he came in and asked her to create the flowers to celebrate his same-sex wedding, and that was not something that he could that she could do in good conscience. And so she declined. She offered to connect him to three other three other local florists. Um, but unfortunately, you know, again, we have another instance where there was a lawsuit filed. And now, uh, six years later, Baronel finds herself before the U.S. Supreme Court asking for clarity on this very important question involving First Amendment rights. From Alliance Defending Freedom, that was Jim Campbell. Comments relative to the number three topic of 2019, Court Victories for Religious Freedom. In the number two position of the top ten topics of 2019, a flurry of pro-life bills passing state legislatures, including the nation's strongest in Alabama. Throughout the past few years, state legislatures have stepped up to pass bills protecting life. A number have been struck down by courts. Still, there is hope that at least one of these bills would be accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court and be used to weaken or overturn Roe v. Wade. While a number of states have passed heartbeat bills banning abortion once the heartbeat of an unborn child is detected, the state of Alabama passed a bill, which has been placed on hold in federal court, that would make it a crime to perform an abortion in the state under almost all circumstances. 
Eric Johnston of the Alabama Pro-Life Coalition played a key role in the legislation called the Alabama Human Life Protection Act and offered this analysis after it passed the legislature. The rape and incest exception had been put on the bill by the Senate Judiciary Committee and that was stripped off um, in the uh, afternoon session last Thursday uh, with the understanding that then the Senate would recess, reconvene on Tuesday, and take up the bill and discuss everything. And that's exactly what happened. They came back uh, mid-afternoon on Tuesday and began the debate on the bill, and it went on for uh, about four or five hours. It was quite long. Uh, in the end, uh, the bill was passed without the amendment, but there was a lot of discussion during those several hours about different amendments, and some, some of them were rather time-wasting, uh, ridiculous kinds of things that were kind of embarrassing. If people you know, were listening to the Alabama legislature, they'd get the idea that they didn't know what they were talking about. But the rape and incest exception that wanted to be put on there was a very serious one, and if it had gone on to the bill, it would have killed the bill. And the reason for that is uh, this bill addresses the personhood of the unborn child. It follows Amendment 2, which voters approved last November in Alabama, which says unborn children are entitled to the protection of law. It does not say unborn children conceived by agreement uh, or consent. It says unborn children, which includes all of them. And, of course, uh, it, when a child is conceived, it does not matter whether it's consensual or by accident or rape, incest, or even artificial insemination. It's still a child, and it's still protected. And so the problem with putting that amendment on is it would have effectively killed the bill. It would have been difficult, if not impossible, to argue to the federal courts that this bill would have to go through the process with uh, how how you can dif differentiate between you know how, you know the, uh, the status of children on how they're conceived. So that was the big rub. That was the big problem. The way the child was conceived, that really, when it comes right down to it, doesn't affect whether or not that child is a person, right? That's correct. It's still a person regardless of how it's conceived. And, and you know, that was the real nut of the issue. And uh, I think the governor understood that. And we are grateful to the governor for signing the bill. You know, initially, some were concerned because she said she wanted to see the bill the way it was written and hear the full debate. But that would only be normal. I mean, if the bill had come to her with the exception in it, you know, she may have vetoed it. I don't know. We may have asked for an executive amendment to take it back off. Those were other, you know, parliamentary options that we could have had. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I, I felt fairly certain that she would sign the bill if it came to her in a clean form uh, and that uh, she did it rather quickly. She's always, you know, been pro-life and, and been consistent in her comments on that, and she demonstrated it faithfully in signing the bill. And I really, before I forget it, I need to, you know, mention the, the yeoman's work and the, uh, the, the uh, intensity of the effort by Terry Collins, representative who introduced the bill and got it passed in the House, and Clyde Chambliss, who then took the bill and got it through the Senate, and uh, Rich Wingo in the House that worked hand in glove with everybody on this from the very beginning to get it done. Uh, Senator Greg Reed in the Senate, when we had this rape and incest problem, he really stepped up 
and helpless with that. Those are very fine pro-life legislators who understand the sanctity of life and all the dimensions of what we were dealing with, and we're very grateful to them for their efforts. Eric Johnston of the Alabama Pro-Life Coalition comments relative to the number two topic of 2019, a flurry of pro-life bills passing state legislatures, including the nation's strongest in Alabama. The number one topic of 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court allowing the Peace Cross in Maryland to stand. A large veterans memorial in the shape of a cross in Bladensburg, Maryland, had been challenged and the U.S. Supreme Court upheld its constitutionality. It's thought that this could possibly have far-reaching impact on religious displays across America. Travis Weber of the Family Research Council shared commentary on the significance of that ruling from the high court. This case, you know, it arose out of a challenge by the American Humanist Association to a large cross-shaped memorial in Bladensburg. Um, It's been there for nearly 100 years, and, and, you know, only recently has the uh, organization American Humanist Association decided to challenge it, um, you know, basically uh, because they don't like a religious symbol in the public square. Um, they brought an establishment claim, uh, establishment clause claim, uh, asserting that, um, you know, this violated the First Amendment's prohibition on the government establishing a religion. You know, I think it's a silly claim, but nevertheless, because we have a number of cases on the books um, in recent years that uh, misinterpret, I would, I would say, misinterpret the Establishment Clause, uh, we have dealt with a situation where the courts have often struck down um, or, or ruled unconstitutional certain public religious uh, monuments and other religious expression that's associated with the government. In this case, the memorial was on government land, and so that was the hook there. Uh, the case wound its way through the, the federal district court, um, which returned a ruling for the cross. The appeals court overturned that, and the U.S. Supreme Court reversed that in a ruling, which heavily looked to the historical significance of this memorial and its cross shape, and um, basically held that uh, when something's rooted in history like this, um, it does not violate the Establishment Clause. The ruling was not very strong, but nevertheless a step in the right direction, and there were indications that... Um, the Establishment Clause jurisprudence could be more cleaned up as we move ahead. So the Family Research Council filed an amicus or friend of the court brief in the case. What were some of your contentions as you entered the case in this way? Yeah, so we did file an amicus brief um, claiming that um, religion naturally manifests itself in community, in local communities. Um, this is significant because obviously um, those uh, commemorating the those who their family members who'd passed away in World War One in this case chose this shape of a cross for their commemoration. It was a local uh, decision, and the locality, the Bladensburg um, community, should be permitted to to commemorate its folks that way. Um, you know, and this is this is an important point to highlight, as these, as as often arises in these cases. The other the other main point that we made was that um, religious faith is inter- intertwined with military service, and it's very difficult to separate it, perhaps more so than other areas of society. So we thought those are important points for the court to keep in mind as it looks at this case. Um, you know, a number of other amicus briefs held uh, raised other points. The parties arguing the case, um, one of which is. First Liberty Institute from Texas, representing the American Legion, defending the cross, um, made a number of different arguments about the Establishment Clause itself, obviously. Um, but, you know, so our, our amicus involvement was driven by um, uh, the, the, the 
the nature of, of this public fight over a religious symbol in public square. We believe it's very important that Americans can continue to express themselves in, in the public square on matters of religion, and they can do so in a community matter such as this, and highlighting the religious or the um, the military element of this case, the fact that this public religious expression is often important in the military context. These are important matters for FRC, so that's what led us to file the brief. Um, we're obviously glad to see this result, but as I pointed out in my entry in the SCOTUS blog, a symposium on the case titled American Legion Lays the Groundwork for the Downfall of Lemon, um, you know, there, there's going to be more work to be done, and we're looking ahead for this area of law to, to be cleaned up. And I talk about that in my in my blog. Well, that wraps up the top 10 topics of 2019. You just heard from Travis Weber of Family Research Council commenting on the number one topic, the U.S. Supreme Court allowing the peace cross in Maryland to stand. A recap now for you with respect to the top 10 topics of 2019, including stories impacting the Christian community, as I highlight on my weekly blog post at The Three and through conversations with a variety of guests on the Meeting House program. Number 10, pastors and church leaders facing monumental struggles. Number 9, Christians in the Middle East, specifically Syria, encountering challenges. Number 8, Chick-fil-A developments causing concern. Number seven, the U.S. Supreme Court considering the meaning of sex in civil rights law. Number six, United Methodists deal with matters of sexuality. Number five, American attempts to advance religious freedom continue. Number four, the Equality Act passes the U.S. House of Representatives and a bill promising so-called fairness for all introduced. Number three, court victories for religious freedom. Number two, a flurry of pro-life bills passing state legislatures, including the nation's strongest in Alabama. And number one, the U.S. Supreme Court allowing the peace cross in Maryland to stand. I invite you to visit the Faith Radio website or the Meeting House homepage. Go to meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Find the Meeting House link there. That will take you to the Meeting House homepage. You'll find a link to the Media Center. That's the place where you can listen to or download full conversations from recent guests heard on the Intersection podcast and guests from the Meeting House program. Full conversations from the Meeting House can be found through the Faith Radio app, as well as a variety of podcast platforms, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and TuneIn Radio. Plus, you can find the Intersection podcast in the Media Center. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. That is updated weekly. There's also The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. You can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this special edition of the Intersection Podcast, the top 10 topics of 2019. I'm Bob Crittenden.